Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world and welcome to another episode of the deep dive with me Eyal Shai and today my guest is Nicolaus Sabatil. Hi Nico. Hi Eyal, thank you for inviting me. Yeah thank you, thank you for being here and as is the custom in this podcast we go straight to the depth of the ocean and I'd like to hear from you what you are going to talk about today. Oh, yes. Um, I don't like small talk, so this is perfect. <laughs> so we are talking about don't try your best. Um, that's a principle that follows me my whole life, from personal to professional. And it's a very deep topic for me. That's, that's excellent. And when you, when you told me about it, I was thinking that it, it would make a, an interesting conversation. So I'm really happy to have it. Um, so you already volunteered the... The information yourself that it's something that's been following you for a long time and I would really like to hear from you a little bit about your history with it and later on I, I'll want to kind of unpack the meaning behind the the word the words that make this slogan or um, or mantra or however you want to call it um, so do you want to take us back in time and trace the the evolution of this concept in your head was there ever a time where you were told to try your best <laughs> i was very luckily raised i was paid, uh, raised in the austrian paradise in a very harmonic family and um still i was a very shy and overthinking child so my mother told me i was afraid of everything in the world <laughs> from loud noises to other people i was a very very shy child and i was searching always for security right and i was afraid of mistakes i was afraid of uh something happening to me and for sure then i was searching for the right way is there a right way that i can be safe in the world uh, trying to find security um, trying to find some level of control you know if you are afraid you want control and there was a big topic in my childhood and it was digested in different ways um one way was also um <laughs> with a friend um so this was the first time i really was conscious of this concept of this strange of don't try your best was actually with a friend in the um, uh, city mall so in a shopping mall, we were walking and I wanted to tease my friend and said, hey, you're walking so strange and so awkward. And he was walking normal. But then he started <laughs> to wanting to correct himself, you know, like, no, I'm walking fine. And then he tried to make this cliche walk because he said, maybe I'm walking stupid and started to overthink himself. Right. Uh -huh. And then he corrected himself and was um, then he was really walking strange. And I thought, hey. There's something in it. Something happened to this guy <laughs> right now. Because I told him he's not walking right. He started to not walk right. 
<laughs> because he tried to. And this was the first time. And then um, I told my brother about it. And we made a lot of fun with this concept. Like we um, searched for different um, other meanings of this, like act natural or act spontaneous. That's all paradox commands, right? Uh, if I tell you to act yes. natural or spontaneous, you can't do anything because everything you will do will be just because I commanded you to do an action. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Yeah, so this was um, my two first layers of it. So one was for sure fear and uncertainty of the world. And the other one was fascination with this logical, psychological concept. Like, wait, there is a very strange mechanism. And then we found... Um, me, my brother and friends, we were then also having fun analyzing society and ourselves and said, there's so often this search for security, the search for uh, doing good, the search for um, social validation and this becoming self-aware was sometimes a hindrance more than a help. Um, another layer was I was playing very intense tennis when I was a teenager. So in tennis, uh, you have a very uh, funny situation because you have to be, on the one hand, very conscious of your movements and aware of the environment, also of yourself. How do you stand? Is everything fine? Um, but you should not become too self-aware or in the wrong way because your body knows what it does. So, and this is a very intense sport, an interesting sport in this way that you have to switch constantly from controlling and getting loose controlling getting loose and there are so many parameters in tennis and so many timing mistakes you can do with your attention uh, with control and letting loose that was another stage to observe this problem for us oh what the heck now why do i think about my wrist all the time and playing tennis you're trying again to play good instead of letting loose and express honesty in this way and do the body thing that it learned yeah that, that that's fascinating and, and thank you for bringing this into my awareness uh, can you elaborate a little bit more about it, the connection of the of the idea to uh to being like a, a scaredy cat child uh, a shy child somebody who's unsure about what's coming next i'm still trying to see the the connection there can you elaborate on that please uh, sure it was um so there was a lot of uncertainty and um fear and overwhelming of the world as a child so i remember that um i didn't know what others were um expecting i didn't know what uh, my role was in the world in a way i was very early um reflecting on this topic and um you know on the basic emotional level it was just like survival fear really it felt very intense as a child and um i became fascinated with psychology and meditation you know in the 90s um this um kung fu movies were very modern like karate kid and i don't know yeah. all this shaolin series and so and i saw this very calm monks bruce lee like doing super cool action and at the same time speaking these wise words. And this, on the one hand, fascinated me and contrasted with my reality of, um, I was in a very safe environment, but felt like in a battlefield uh, many, many times. So 
especially for example in my middle school it was a very very um uh, not behaving class a lot of wild teenagers full of hormones and um because of this class even the uh, rules of the school had to change so it was really not that <laughs> peaceful um because it was a sports school and um first they just filtered the pupils for sports abilities and nowadays they filter it because of also behavior and psychological right. ripeness <laughs> and this was, this was because of my class and i was suffering super intensely because of this because half of the boys were bullying each other every day punching each other every day and i was just like what the fuck is happening here and trying to find security in this and so I had an also very early puberty and reflected on this. I was like, what the fuck? What is my role there? And how can I find my way? And I saw very early that a lot of people and myself were searching for recipes and security because there was fear. Because I understood already in middle school that fear um, yeah, provides with the desire um, of control because you want to... Um, avoid the fear and if you have control you can feel safe and i was aware very early on with this concept and um then i was researching after let's yeah let's jump maybe back to the end of middle school then when i saw uh maybe the most influential movie in my <laughs> lifetime till now it was the cliche movie last samurai with tom cruise Okay, I'm not sure um, I watched it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still like it, but it's mostly because of... I don't mean, I think it's not a bad Hollywood movie. It's many, many cliches, like this old Shaolin Karate Kid um, movie's head with this mental clarity, then you can fight and kill most efficiently or some stupid other slogans. <laughs> <laughs> but what catched me was the role of Tom Cruise at this time. I was... 15, I was really, really in a deep psychological um, place. And uh, the character of Tom Cruise was alcoholic in the beginning of the movie and was struggling and fighting his own battles with the world. And then he was brought to this Buddhistic culture and confronted with something completely different. And he experienced something like an ego death, I would interpret it and came out like more free, calm and peaceful, loving. And then my travel continued. I bought my first books with Buddhism, my books about Zen then, um, about how Samurai lived, um, the Hagakure, for example, or Bushido I bought and all this cliche books that you find on the airport <laughs> so, so i want to i want to i want to stop you for a minute and ask like if what you're saying is that basically this desire for control that stemmed from that was stemming from uh fearing things that's the kind of thing that makes you try too hard right basically is, is what you're saying that's that's when you when you go off the rails and and into something that's unhealthy because you're trying to um, stabilize your car that just veered off to the left, but you're um, turning the wheel too much to the right and then you're drifting even with less control, right? Yes. So um, the big factor is fear and, and um, intolerance of uncertainty in this way. Yes. Um, so 
you feel like there's danger and you see this often with um, pupils that are um, or children that were raised uh, in an authorian way. So there was a certain way they should behave. There's a is and a should. And if you're not at the should level of behavior, then you're punished. You don't get love as a child. Um, and they often um, develop a very perfectionistic um, mind because there's even when they're grown up, there's a very strong should. And, there's, and there's this the should voice. creates control. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so this is like, um, I was raised in a very uh, positive, loving way. I got always love, but I had this fear in myself. I don't know, genetically or something happened. I don't know. But from the very early age, I had it as a baby already. My mom told me. So, and this, um, if we are if afraid, we're searching for structures on the one hand. And for social validation, because we don't have a very strong sense of self in us. We don't stand alone in a way. We need um, approval. We need social validation. Uh, and then there happens something. Because the focus switches from the activity you're doing to yourself. Because you feel insecure in yourself. So you have to monitor yourself. For sure, if you feel insecure. And monitoring yourself is then often a very bad feedback loop because, oh, shit, I'm, my face gets red. Shit, 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 I should get it back. I mean, stupid or try to get fear down by fighting it. It will just get higher and higher. Or um, you're monitoring yourself um, in the sport. Am I right now the best one? Am I right now perceived as a good player in tennis, for example? This happens when you feel insecure in yourself. And then this feedback loops of struggles, you try to prove yourself, you try to control the situation and you're into trying. And trying is good, but you're overdoing the thing of trying, overanalyzing, yeah. um, overthinking, constantly ruminating about this one topic because there is your focus point. The burning point of your life is something is not right in, in the yeah. sense of self. And so it has to be monitored constantly. And this don't try your best is a very, very good antidote that always um, on many layers works very well. That's great. I mean, the, now, now that you brought into the picture, um, looking at the religious practices and following a way, whether it's Zen or Buddhism, I mean, Zen is a, is a section of Buddhism, but any, any sort of thing like that, I think what you're saying is basically look at, at religion for what it is. It's a, it's a prescription, right, on how to live your life. Um, and it's not just religion. You know, many people who are atheists have, have the same type of thing in their life, which they don't recognize as religion. But really, it's another prescription on how to live. And some of these are very uh, soft, so-called prescriptions, like um, everybody's working nine to five. So it's just this un it's inexplicit, but it's still there. It acts as, as a prescription. And on the surface, it looks like following a prescription like that is the easy way out, right? To fight, to fight uncertainty or something like that, because it gives you this rule book and tells you if you just do one, two, three, four, five, and if you just go to this rabbi, to this priest, to this holy man, you, he's going to give you the answers. Your life is going to be very simple. But at the same time, 
when you subscribe to, to something like that, I think immediately you get thrown into the state that you're now describing of actually constantly having to monitor yourself. Are you on this very narrow path that's now the right path for you? So you are not, you are no longer, you know, rowing a, a canoe on the on a still river where you can go like here and there on on the amazon or some great big river but right now you're actually more like being thrown through rapids in this very steep stream so it does that connect with your point of how you see this thing that actually this need to simplify things but by following a, a paved path is actually restricting you and making you a whole um, a whole lot more um, self-conscious and by extension worried anxious and so on yeah so um, this uh, is a topic that had multiple aspects for me personally um, on the one hand I was um, as a teenager finding one more out okay everybody searches for recipes for life and at the same time, I found that this cannot be the truth, right? So that, that everybody just has some random rules they create for themselves and then they stick very dogmatically to them as they would have been God given. <laughs> it's, and it, this was absurd already for me at this time. And it was mirrored by my uh, passion for Monty Python that made the fun about all these absurd society rules very intensely. And but I searched for this also subconsciously. And I found first this samurai codex, as I said, and Buddhist books. And I was reading them. I was like, what the heck? These are still again recipes. Buddhist has this and this rituals to this and this and this way. These are the stages of awakening. Exactly follow them. So that's not what I'm searching for. And I came then to Zen Buddhism because it said Zen is beyond all words. And I said, that reflected me. I said, oh, yes, truth can never be a recipe. Truth of reality, truth of, of expression can never be a, uh, a recipe or put in words. And it was sold to me in this way. And I started to meditate a lot. And I found a lot of help in meditation um, and uh, did this for 10 years, quite intense. I went to retreats and I was ordained even as a pre-monk. Um, and had my teachers, um, so two, three main teachers I had them at this time. And, but I found more and more traps in this way. I was like, Sen says you should unleash your mind from all the structures. You should jump out and be honest in your expression. But at the same point, it's very military in its structure. You have to sit like this. You have to eat like this. You have to recite this in the sutra. And um, sometimes they show you that it's absurd. So there are, there are very good Zen teachers that show you, wait, we're doing this right now just to calm your mind, but they are absurd. We can, instead of the Buddha statue, we can put a Tilitabi here and it doesn't matter. Or you, um, we can recite the uh, ACDC song, but it's about concentrating the mind. Um, this is the best Zen teachers. And still I found that most people got somehow stuck in this Zen. They did Zen as a way to search for security again because they hoped for the big enlightenment moment. They hoped for 
freeing them finally from the sorrows of life. And then I thought, this can it neither be. Zen, as intuitively, and some teachers really teach very authentic, um, and but still most 90% of the pupils I saw got somehow felt stuck and myself, I got stuck in this. And then I developed myself away from it and um, got more into um, sports again, like Kung Fu I did, um, still the fascination with the East. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I did also like improv very intensely. And in improv, actually, I found then exactly these concepts and they know since 60, 70 years what is this mechanism of trying and they work with it and they train pupils to get loose to enjoy themselves and not focus on themselves but the play itself the story itself the melody of the interconnection and I found there such a grace and beauty and joy in it um, that this became then one of my major stages of developing this further. That, that's great. And, and I think it just, uh, it was a perfect segue because I'd like us, and I still have a lot to say about the path of, of subscribing to something and then, and then giving it away and what's the option and remembering that we sometimes have to just um, not do anything and, and do that. And I think we'll come back to it. But uh, since you just started speaking about it, I'd like to explore the the try part of the sentence so trying i think is a very vague word in in how we use it today i mean obviously it means that you intend to do something and you don't just intend but you're kind of on the way to doing it but it's still unclear if you're actually doing it right it's it's somewhere it's somewhere on that um spectrum of action like between uh, not yet doing and, and doing, and it's in this weird space between them. And I thought that uh, I thought to ask you for you if you could connect it to maybe related concepts in, in the semantic field of, of the world. Is it, is it connected to, to striving? Is it connected to, um, we keep mentioning others. Is it also connected to competition in some way? Um, where do you put this, this term try um, in relation to other concepts in your mind? Yeah. So um, this is a huge field that influences many psychological, neurological aspects and um, also overlaps with many um, semantic fields. Um, one of these um, major distinctions we have to make is implicit memory and explicit memory. So we have two ways uh, let's say in the cliche way, two ways of controlling ourselves. It's top down and bottom up. So um, top down is mostly descriptive, so explicit. When you play tennis, put your arm back, stand sideways, do this and this. You can talk about it, right? You can read about it. But then there is this implicit part that is actually very, very major part. You have to get them movement into an instinctive way sure you can do it explicit but then it has to get deeper so a learning process is often this rhythmic pulsation between explicit you first you have to understand digressionally what you have to do and you describe yourself 
give yourself a recipe. Ah, this is how I do it. But then you have to let loose and repetitive, get into it in different situations, forehand, in tennis, in a thousand different ways. And then you learn instinctively implicit patterns when, how to move your hands because consciously you can't control your hand so fast <laughs> to react because reacting is instinct. So it's this, it has to go down into your subconscious and become a habit, a behavior, a reactive impulse, like an animal. But it's, it's a cool way we can train our inner wolves in this way, our own beast. And sometimes the beast does its part when it's trained. And sometimes we have to train the beast again in us. So this is, um, and there's desire. You mentioned desire is often a conscious desire, right? Because it's a need, it's a lack of something. And in a very abstract way, a desire is a problem, like a task. Because you, if you have a desire, you have a certain lack of this thing. You perceive a lack. So it's like the inverse of the desire is the lack. Well, I mean, literally the word want is something missing, right? It's a lack. So um, that's exactly. exactly what it is. So you seek out something that will complete you. Yes. And um, even in neuroscience, and now we come to the interesting part, we see um, as soon as our body-mind perceives a problem, a problem is distinguished in our brain as our predictions that our brain makes are not met. For example, if I do tennis and I'm perfect with my forehand, but then I make a mistake, the brain makes a buzz noise and say, some prediction of mine was not correct. And then self-awareness pops up and say, oh, we need to train the beast better. Something happened there. And this is now more and more coming up in research that exactly this prediction error of the brain triggers self-awareness. This prediction error is lack, it's desire. And then we are here. Okay, I have a goal and it's good that we have goals um, in life. We need goals, we need descriptive, we need to have self-awareness. Where am I in my life? We need to see the big picture in us, with our life, in our family, in the society, at work. So it's good to have self-awareness, but, but the question is, this balance between, I call it the beast and, and the trainer of the beast. So this is a problem that can lead from perfectionism to OCD, to anxieties, depression, because there's an imbalance in this rhythmic. Also OCD, for example, is a very strong illness um, where they find more and more out that the implicit memory, so the, the beast um, is... Uh, behaving so in a way feels always insecure. You know, you mm -hmm. have to control, to control, to control, and give the beast feel it always security, but it doesn't receive the security. And this is OCD from the most current research. That's fascinating, and you're you're shedding such a, a fresh light on it uh, from my perspective. Um, so, to connect this to trying, do you think that trying is this? ill-fitting action that's done with just in more explicitly when so basically you're saying trying is doing 
what you you might you might need to do that thing, but you don't want to do this explicitly. You want your beast to to take over, as you put it. You want to do this basically in a state of flow, uh, not 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 filtered through some some sort of ego on the way or some conscious um, effort. Yeah. So um, you have this um, trying is part of every learning process. I would say um, trying is not good or bad. So it's we need to train it uh, our implicit memory. We have to feed it with patterns. Uh, the first time I learn the forehand at tennis, I have to do it consciously. I have to. Okay, how do you stand? How do you hold your hand? You have to be very self-aware at the first trials, and then um, so there's a um, you have to let loose and let more and more movements be habitualized, become implicit, and. I would say unhealthy trying is the f- is trying to control something explicitly that could be better controlled implicitly. So that's how I personally define then the term also overthinking and neuroticism. You can try to control yourself explicitly instead of implicitly. It would be better. And this is then also wisdom comes from me in when you recognize when to do what. So um, this is um, a very important point for me um, and also in my practice now and um, yes, in my writing. That's great. And I'll I'll take advantage of the the opportunity here to share something from my life. And also I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on it. But in my life, it was quite late. I don't know if it's late. I mean, many people don't don't come across it at any point. But in my 20s, I, I found my ancient Greek teacher and started having these philosophical discussions with him. And he's the one who kind of turned my attention to the fact that the concepts we're using in words, um, like the good, justice, love, these things are actually ill-defined in our mind that we have the concepts of them. Um, in our virtual reality that's happening inside our minds Um, and you don't want them to you want them to to be elegant in a way and and have this elegance to them as they're arranged in your mind and by discussing them explicitly through words and preferably in more than one language you can actually set a foundation of these concepts in your mind that are then going to carry you forward in life with uh, considerably less confusion, right? Um, so that's so that's the theoretical part of, of philosophy. That's um, dialectic, I'd say. And this leads you to a place where you are able to talk to people about these things and but what I noticed about me is that the first instinct that I had when I started doing these things, when I started understanding the good, when I started understanding um, these concepts that are very central to, to actually being able to, to do well and good in this world, the first instinct was to then evangelize, right? To go and talk to people about, about these things. Um, and I, I hadn't realized at the time that here I'm stuck on this explicit level of things where I'm just talking about these things, right? And they're not necessarily applied yet. And even though I knew already from reading Plato and analyzing his dialogues correctly, I knew that he chose not to write things explicitly. Very interesting about Plato, you know, we don't have any writings by him that are masses or treatises. He writes dialogues. 
Now you have to explain, why does he write dialogues and not just what he thought, right? Well, I'm not going to give it away, but there needs to be a good reason why he did that. And there is a perfectly good reason. And even though I already knew that feeding people opinions is not, is not conducive to, to understanding, to true understanding, well, that's the level I was stuck at, right? And it took me a longer time to realize that, um, that knowledge has to be applied. And when it's applied on real world situations, that's understanding. And then operating in the real life, in the real world with understanding, when you're also understanding your ultimate goal, that's wisdom. And it's very interesting what you're just now saying about applying this knowledge and the fact that you, you need to learn it explicitly um, because it makes me think also of, of a lot of modern philosophers, right? Which are so stuck on this explicit level. And, and you know, you can just basically talk yourself to death. Like you can come up with more and more problems that are getting increasingly, increasingly ridiculous, like the trolley problem and discuss these things into the wee hours of the night and just, you can probably make a lot of money like talking about these things and, and getting people to listen, but you really need to at some point go beyond to that level of, of implicit action of something that, that's just there for you. And it's also scary in a way because even though it, it takes a leap of faith almost to really tell yourself, okay, I know what the good is. I know what's, what, what the right action is. And therefore, the next time I'm actually faced with a situation that calls for a very fast reaction, I cannot allow myself to, to go back to the explicit mode, right? I can just let it out. And I, I have to trust my work that I did before, that it's there and that it's going to turn out well. And like you say, I might still find, I might find that there's a problem and that my prediction was wrong. And, but that's opportunity for further learning and, and doing that. And I think it connects well with what you were saying about prescriptions and, and subscriptions um, for people to, to follow. That, that's it, right? I mean, there is no such thing as, as the self when we look at it. It's a process, not a, not a thing that's there. But we are still each confined to their own perspective. Like we see, I can only see through my eyes. I can hear through my ears. I can think in my mind. And we, each of us has to be their own scientist. Like I think this, is, this lies at the heart of the problem of not being able to live your life according to somebody else. It's like, you must be your own scientist in this realm of science. There are sciences that we can do and discuss between us and find things, about, find things about the world, but not when it comes to morality. That's actually the one science where each one of us is confined to their own mind and each one of us has to do the, the science themselves. And um, so I'm just interested of, of hearing what you think about that, if it, if it connects to the, to the trying in any way, because that's something that immediately jumped to my mind. Um, yeah, it's uh, resonated so, so much and uh, triggered uh, many, many new ideas. <laughs> so um, one thing you said about it is scary to trust yourself and uh, to go from the explicit stage to implicit. 
And this is exactly this. Um, it, it's psychological, neurological, really proven that this is an actual fear of letting loose of this explicit behavior. This is in a if it would be 100 times stronger, let's say it would be OCD. And we all have to some certain uh, type or level OCD, where we have this urge to stay at the explicit level of control, instead of trusting our subconscious implicit memory. Um, so this is something, for example, it's called um, by I think it's Professor Schwartz. Um, it's um, he talks about the brain lock. You keep in this loop of explicitly trying to make yourself a feeling of security and trust. And um, one way he says to um, hack this is the thoughts of or the feeling of not just right, not just safe enough comes up. You say, oh, you take it with a name, OCD or bullshit or whatever. You take it and then you go over to an action because action signals the body-mind Ah, I'm safe enough to do actual an action and not think or control about it. And um, this is actually used in therapy against OCD. It's a behavioral therapy concept. They say, oh, just the thoughts that doesn't make sense now. OCD, tech name, and you go and clean or something where you get immediately feedback, right? So it can be cleaning, cooking, cutting something, um, whatever. Um, something where you have immediately feedback and action is resolved. And then this implicit memory, this feeling of security can be drained again. Um, so this is uh, right now used in therapy. Another interesting thing you said is the dialogues, the philosophical. There are many reasons to have this um, psychologically because they are very, very useful. First, you have a narrative part in it. It's a dialogue. It's not directly prescribed in an imperative way. The second thing is that it's um, an implicit understanding. So if it's given like a to-do list, like 99% uh, of the self-improvement videos on YouTube right now, uh, the five steps to become, I don't know, a millionaire, um, and they want to sell them and uh, or this one weird streak everybody, every doctor hates uh, makes you more beautiful. <laughs> so it's um, people love security and uh, salesmen know how to use this. Um, but top-down concepts will not go deep. A dialogue is a form of a narrative that is bottom-up. It's a thing that we have to hunt ourselves like Reddy would say. Reza always says he never delivers knowledge um, just for free. You have to search, hunt for it. And this hunting is a process of digestion, of inner digestion. So that your whole body, your no whole nervous system reflects on this concept. It's like Visa talked about this haiku, like a, a haiku, the Japanese poems. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, five, so seven, five. Exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, the perfect haiku is like a stone thrown into a pond. It creates its own waves of resonance. You know, when I read a book 10 years ago, it's a different book when I read it now because the line 
Peter stroke the cat has always a different meaning. And the best poems have this implicit power. They, they hide implicit concepts. They hide them in some layers between a narrative that our subconscious doesn't defend against it. it, it it's open for it, it and it absorbs its patterns. And then it creates its own personal meaning out of it. And then it becomes truth because they don't think explicitly about it, but you, you have them. That's why I think also cultures and stories are so fucking important. Um, they are so, you cultivate a own personal meaning that is transmitted by narratives. It's in most natural way. And like every poet, every good filmmaker knows that. David Lynch is very extreme in this. His movies are like nightmares or dreams. He doesn't tell you anything explicit. <laughs> They're very. Have you, have you read Have you read Finnegan's Wake ever? Uh, no, never read it. Oh, you. This is this is the book for you, my man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, I, I love such abstract books. It's maybe also an abstract book, as just maybe, um, at least abstract stories or stories that have some layer of abstraction and deep archetypes. What John Peterson say? The, um have in them packed, then there's resonance because we have all similar subconscious concepts, you know? It's not like, I would not say that we have a, a, the picture of a dragon in our subconscious, <laughs> but we have, we know what darkness means on some level. Very personal, but still it's quite some overlap in all humans. What light on the other side means, what love means. Um, I don't know if there's a culture that um, sees love as something cold for example we have this embodiment or high numbers high, why do we say high numbers for big numbers right <laughs> right so there's always an embodiment aspect and the best stories are pre-digested messages for our subconsciousness like hypnotherapy they they go in and then like the stone in the pond make their uh -huh. own waves and we express them through honest art and again in our lives that that's that's fascinating uh the way you put it and to me it also connects like not in the most explicit way because that's not the kind of a conversation we're having it's not about making the most explicit <laughs> connections um, yeah to me you know from what i learned about about understanding concepts and also but also about understanding how to go from point A to point B, right? I mean, in the Mino, a dialogue by Plato, Socrates is teaching a slave how to solve a geometrical problem. And he makes it his point, and he tells in the interlocutor Mino um, to watch for him and tell him if he's telling the slave anything, okay? So he's making a point that you can teach someone without telling them anything. And now in the dialogue, there's this whole like ridiculous thing um, about um, how the soul is immortal. Therefore, the slave already knows these things and he just has to remember. But discount that. That's, that's, um, that's a technique by Socrates to achieve something even greater. But Socrates, just through asking, is teaching the slave how to solve a geometrical problem. And he's doing it by taking him step through step and having the slave attempt different solutions, right? And, and they don't work. And um, the teacher eventually asks questions in the right direction. So 
eventually the slave um, gets it and you know Socrates says well do this a few more times and and you'll be able to know it right and Plato in that dialogue is is saying a lot about knowledge that it's really now to connect it back to people who give you this prescription the dogma they um, for example they could draw a star for you just an outline of a star on on a piece of paper or rectangle whatever shape and they're like this is it this is what you should know that this shape is right and it just turns out that learning is much more effective if you're if you make someone unwittingly um, create this shape on paper not by outlining this shape but by taking them through the different aspects of this shape as it's seen from different ways until what is left inside is the shape. That's understanding. So going from point A to point B is best achieved if you actually know what are the wrong turns as well, where they take you, okay? So it's not just about um, going down three blocks, seeing the red sign, turning right, going down two blocks, seeing the green sign, going left. Like deep understanding is also knowing what you're going to see if you took a right turn one block too early, right? If you see a purple sign, well, that means you took a, a turn one block too early. And it's making these maps in your mind that actually really consolidate the, the concepts that are important to you and then they're fastened to your, to your soul better. They're not fleeting. They don't run away from you. You don't forget them because if you're given the right answer, it's not fastened to anything around it. Like it can just fly away um, with just memory. You're basically just relying on memory. But if there are lots of bits around it that, you, that supply the context, then you're in a much better position. Then you can also work by way of elimination. And of course, Really, it's more like having a, a, a whole space there rather than having no dimensions or one dimension. You have three dimensions to, to explore this place and, and understand. And I think that really creates a lot, a lot more um, confidence in yourself when the time comes to act um, according to instinct. And there it's there for you. So... Is it fair to say that this would be a type of technique to finally let go of the of the realm of the explicit and and start and start going down to the realm of the of the implicit? Like after you have, for for example, learned how to swing um, the racket in a tennis match correctly, um, I'm wondering if it would be it would still be wise every once in a while or something to. First of all, keep experimenting to a sense, like to be able to see if you can do the wrong thing and succeed, succeed in doing the wrong thing that is actually um, not conducive to winning the game. But it's actually really interesting if you can hit the ball in such, at such an angle that it actually hits the post of the net, which is really hard to do. And actually, this is not going to win you the game, but it proves that you understand the swinging the right way better yeah this is an amazing um important point so um you said like failing till the form emerges the right form for example the geometric um circle um this is um a completely different way of 
perceiving mental maps. Because mental maps perceived from top down, a circle is drawn like this, you will never understand first how, why, and the context around it. And um, you cannot apply it into different forms. Um, so a circle that emerges is embedded in the whole network of knowledge. Yes. That's one thing. There's, there's wisdom below the knowledge that carries it. Um, the second thing is that it gives you the tool. If I tell you how to draw a circle, or let's say uh, if I tell you how to do the forehand in tennis, and you believe me and I'm the guru of forehand in tennis, say, that's how you do it. Then you take over a dogma and you, maybe you manage to get it into the implicit memory, dogmas can be can come very deep and can uh, never get out of the implicit again. <laughs> but we never learned that this forehand is not a noun, but a verb. It has, it's a map making always. It's a mental map making. Uh, forehand, I learned from my um, teacher when I was eight years old, has to be updated after each step nearly, there's a healthy rhythmic for sure. There's a frequency and, a, and an amplitude that is right for updating. Um, but if we get dogmas prescribed, it's a noun. It's a static mental map. And we never learn that map making and meaning in our lives is always, is always a verb. It has to constantly update it. Otherwise, it becomes a dogma and is not fitting to reality anymore. And it's not honest. So this is one point. The other point is you mentioned the aesthetic of the problem. So the aesthetic that emerges, for example, the circle or the right forehand. There's, there's an enjoyment in it, right? When you do the right forehand, there's a pleasure. Oh, yes, that fitted. That was well. And there is neuroscience also that shows now that there's a certain pleasure in the aesthetic of mental maps. And probably that's one theory right now and I, that feels extremely intuitive again in itself, um, that aesthetic is the drive for healthy mental maps. That means um, I need a map that covers reality in a pragmatic way. It should be not too complicated, not too uh, specific, but not too wide. It should be achievable. It should be has many parameters. It's a multidimensional thingy. And there's a drive in us that monitors our concepts and our knowledge. And the form in this multidimensional realm can be updated and can be beautiful, can be clack. It works, this concept. It works now. And this drives motivation. This drives then motivation in an artistic, intrinsic way. You learn then not to do the forehand because you want to have social validation from your teacher or from your mom, but you want to you enjoy the process of map making. And then the beauty comes out of the aesthetic and the motivation and the drive. And then comes self-confidence out of aesthetic because you're not focused on yourself anymore, but the beauty of the forehand, the beauty of the circle and, and the play with it, you know, because aesthetic is like an artist and enjoys to play with colors. 
And then, oh, wow, what happens there? There comes curiosity, creativity in. There comes exploration in. And bravery of exploration. You take risks because I want to know what happens if, if I hit it with this angle. What if I do this and this? And then joy, childlike joy comes. And this is, for me, one of the most effective drivers for health. To have really this foundation of aesthetic mental map mapping in you from this you can nurture your motivation and this is i think what i'm trying um to do with my improv coaching also that's, that's to teach that's the children I'm, I'm really upset maybe maybe this episode will have to be released on video because people don't realize that i'm nodding so so uh, enthusiastically and i have this big smile on my face and and it's uh, it's just beautiful i think you you put it you put it so well and not not that i don't enjoy talking about it this level but i want to also um kind of take it back to to a personal level and and reconnect it to your uh to your journey um throughout the years so we said that you had basically become disillusioned with a bunch of of ways including one way which kind of said about itself that it's not a way which is interesting because you know what i can totally believe the original person who practiced this way did not have this way but again just like we said there's a, an inherent problem with um inheriting a non-way from someone you're very likely to make it a way so at, at this point after you had become somewhat disillusioned with with zen what do we see you doing next yeah so i was super lucky as usual in life um i was just super super lucky till this moment i'm so thankful for this one moment um i was um, meeting a colleague of mine i studied physics and i started um i met a colleague and she told me from a book called krishnamurti Chito Krishnamurti, you know him <laughs> uh, superficially not not very deeply here yeah. um He was a very interesting guy who was raised um, as the new guru of the new age coming to humanity. He was raised by an esoteric sect. I don't know if it was led by British in India or it was a corporation, but it was a huge sect, very, very powerful, 100 years ago. And they took two children, Chidu Krishnamurti and his brother, and raised Chidu Krishnamurti in this sect to be the new Jesus. And they taught him all religions, philosophy, all concepts. And he should really become the new leader. It was really extreme. And with the age of 18, he should take over his power and become Jesus. He stood up on the stage and dissolved the sect. And said, truth is a pathless land. It cannot be expressed in any dogma, in any recipe, in any bullshit you try to convince me. He dissolved his whole powerful sect like this with one speech. And this is in itself incredible. A person that was brainwashed from earliest childhood, like the Dalai Lama, you know, yeah. <laughs> open from the family and you are the new holy person. Raised till 18, completely brainwashed. He stands on stage and says, fuck you all. That's bullshit, that's propaganda, that is Nazi-like stuff you're doing. Um, truth is a powerless land. It's a very famous speech. It's, it's amazing, inspiring, and he dissolved it. He became a philosopher and 
a guru and he always falls the guru picture. He said, I don't take pupils, I don't take anybody, but he traveled around the world and talked about this pathless path. So find your fucking own truth. Do your own thing. Um, research who you are. What are your thoughts? What are your emotions? What is the self? Find Do science. Do science. It's, it's the first person science we talked exactly. about. So, and I was read, reading this book from him. I think it's, I don't know, something with freedom thingy in the title. I was reading it. Holy shit. This is it. I'm swearing a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's good. We'll mark it NSFW for, uh, for the podcast um, platforms. No problem. <laughs> good. So I was reading it and I was already before for sure um, very frustrated with Zen and I was a bit already away from this path. But then this book, like, yes, that's it. And I, I didn't go anymore to the Zen meditation school because I found this absurdity in it. And then I was searching, I was doing sport very intensely and I was reading his books, but he was a philosopher. He could not tell me how to live his concepts. And I was, what does it mean for me? And I, I was already much, much more healthy in my mind than I was a, when I was a teenager. I was at this stage, I think, I don't know, 23, 24. Um, and I started Buddhism when I was 15. And yeah, not even 10 years. I was in there, but very intense. And I was already much more calmer, more self-confident, more embedded in life. Um, but there was still this struggle. Like There was something, an itch in me. Something was not yet dissolved. Krishnamurti expresses it in words. But how can I practice this? How can I practice this spontaneous self-confidence, this, this safety in unsafety, uh, this ever-changing cloud that I am? Um, and then I was going into Bruce Lee. <laughs> well, my next step, I found him, and he's again this cliche superstar of action movies and it's really crazy how all these cliche figures influenced me most, but it's, I like it. My first superstar was David Hasselhoff till now. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. Uh, my, my gurus were always uh, in the B movies, but um, <laughs> that's how I handled them. Um, so I was fascinated by him and his speeches. He was very eloquent and he said, there he, he also learned Wing Chun and this Kung Fu and like Krishnamurti, he dissolved in his own techniques and styles. He said he doesn't believe anymore in styles because a style is always a crystallization of something that is repetitive, a habit, and then it's sure there are patterns. But you I'm, try I'm nodding again, by the way. I'm Sorry? nodding. I'm telling yes. the listeners I'm nodding again. Yeah. <laughs> in agreement. And this sentence from Busley triggered, wait, I try again to find the crystallization. I try to again find the recipe, how to behave, how to live. And I said, okay, I have to go away from this search, from searching. And then I was like, okay, the problem is not truth and how can it be expressed, but how can I still my doubts and fears of searching? How can I stop myself from, from searching these concepts. Like Wittgenstein said, you uh, realize the problem has vanished 
when the question vanished. And I try to find out how to tell my inner beast the safety to allow to trust myself the balance between the curator and, and the composition, this movement to emerge. And I found then um, the provocative therapy and I took seminars in it um, that brought me ne uh, near to improv. So I, this seminars, I don't know, I was always interested in psychology and um, I always searched for seminars, I did courses and so, and wanted to become a coach myself. And I found this provocative therapy and provocative therapy has one principle. Your need for safety is turned against your own will. For example, um, we said before about OCT therapy is behavioral therapy. One situation is I have to control the oven. If the oven is turned off 10 times before I go out um, of the flat, right? This is a very common um, OCT people have. Um, otherwise, I don't feel safe that the oven is turned off. So behavioral therapy would train you to confront you with the feeling of uncertainty and reduce the controls and so on. And maybe with some hom um, hormone therapy even combined to give the body the feeling of security. And provocative and systemic therapeut would say, yeah, it's right, you do 10 times, but are you really sure? Are you really sure? Maybe you should do it 20 times and between all times controlling the oven, you should make a little twist with your body and recite the, um, I don't know, Pater Nostre. And I said, okay, doctor, okay, doctor, maybe uh, I should be more secure and do better rituals. You're right. And then he does this and the doctor tells the next time, how did it go? Said, yeah, well, it's good. It's a bit exhausting to do all these rituals, but it went well. You gave me more security. I said, okay, good. But I think it's not enough. The next time you have to do the light on and off three times in between each control. He, he brings their own rituals into absurdity, raising it from week to week into absurdity, but empathically. For sure, if, if you do it in the first time already in the absurd way, the client will refuse this. And you have also to learn how to read the client. How can you bring him into this absurdity, teach him the absurdity of security? And then there's a moment, there's a very big moment when after several weeks, when the rituals take an hour to perform that he can leave the flat, that the client says, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm reciting this and singing Pocahontas songs. I'm turning on and off lights. I'm dancing tango in between. <laughs> what is this? And then there becomes this absurdity is processed more and more deep with more and more humor. And this embodied, because you have to do it slowly, that it embodies it into the implicit behavior. He has doubts over several weeks. And these doubts work against the other doubts. And then he said, what the heck? He comes to the doctor and says, you know, let me alone. I don't do your stupid rituals. And he <laughs> turns off the oven and goes out of the flat. And it has to work. And it doesn't work with every um, patient for sure. Um, it has... Uh, but some of them, done. some of them stay, some of them stay with uh, noticeably longer rituals. <laughs> 
If so, you can always switch therapy again into behavioral methods or something else. You better, but, yeah. Yes, you better. Um, but this is really a method. Um, it's used in provocative and systemic therapy um, to teach you the absurdity of your own security thinking. In this, um, it's also sometimes done in a dialogue, dialogic way. So, for example, if you tell me, yeah, I I'm, I'm, have a hard time to express my honest opinion. I tell you, yeah, maybe it's good, you know. Um, maybe you should be, everybody expresses his own opinion. And I mean, it, it's sometimes good you are alone, you have your own peace and, you know, you for sure you have stomachache because of you're so angry inside you, but you can take pills, right? It's not such a problem. You do it in a laughful way. Maybe I did it now in a bit, uh, too, it seemed too cynical, but you have to adapt this again very empathically no I, I i i totally i totally get what you're saying and i think it's it's worth just sharing a few facts that i i find uncanny so the time i mentioned to you before when i kind of came across this mentor of mine and and things he showed me about what plato actually did and what his socrates did in the dialogues that was around 23 24 so i think there's a point to be made that um also there's a kind of absurdity about the current age which we perceive people to to be adults and, and that's it where you should just know everything which usually is like 18 or 21. Um, so there's, that's just a small point but it's very fascinating to me because in my teenage years I was I was very depressed you know and and I had I had good reason so I lost uh, my mother at age 10 to, to an accident and suffered this trauma and I went into this uh, long depression and when I started getting out of it, with the help of, of Buddhism, of everything pretty much you mentioned, of absurdism, so Kierkegaard, of uh, Rollo May, so existentialism and humanism, all these isms, uh, slowly I, I, got, I got up. And I think there's definitely value in, in, in reading these isms, even though eventually you give up on them, just like, you know, um, Bruce Lee and Krishnamurti did. But I find it interesting because Plato is really telling you without telling you, but inexplicitly telling you that uh, just what Krishnamurti told you, right? It's like, you have to read this. I'm not going to tell you anything. And yet you're going to come to, to understandings on your own. But you, you have to do it yourself. He like puts the, the responsibility on you. And what you just got at now with the absurdities a hundred percent what Socrates is trying to do to people. So interlocutors are confused in the dialogues and they remain confused because they're models. And I would love us to keep discussing this between us later. And I know we will. Um, but if you look at what Socrates is doing with his questioning, it's basically taking things ad absurdum, right? So the right way to go about gun laws in the US, for example, is not to sit there and say, like, tell people who want their guns, look how much suffering this causes. You know, children are being murdered, blah, blah, blah. They, they know that. Um, they have their set ways. They have an answer to that. They have an answer. It's in the Constitution. They can just say, well, anything you throw at them, it's in the Constitution. Now, what are arms? We can look at arms and say, well, arms are not just... Um, firearms right it's like if you want a really free country you should really own your own jet plane i mean 
this is um, just common sense. I and mean, why not? It's it's against freedom not to allow a person to own their own jet plane and fly it wherever they want, um, not report to anyone. I mean, screw the the flight controls and all that. You can do whatever you want. And I mean, also with driving on the road. I mean, li- traffic lights are just lights. You know, they're just lights. Are you going to listen to lights? What lights are going to, to tell you what you're going to do? You're a free person in a free country. And, you know, these lines that divide the lanes, I mean, these are just lines, man. If you're a free person, you should be free. A red design. light, a communistic light shows you the way, American. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, so... It's almost uncanny how we, we have arrived at, at similar ideas in like totally different ways. And, um, but there's something about that that, that that I really love about the, the absurd. And I want to share from my own life, you know, that towards the end of my depression, I think what I learned to do is, is basically look at things in an absurd way. So um, my inter-intellect salon about Kurt Vonnegut was kind of going over that. Kurt Vonnegut was a genius when it comes to to bringing you to these absurdities and pointing them out to you, how absurd um, everything is. And from there, also there came a realization that it's really healthy to just become, um, if it's in relationships, to, to be able to become a doormat, for example. What do I say by doormat? To be utterly vulnerable and, um, and let, if other people are going to do something to you or harm you, Uh, be able to be in a place to to actually allow that, yeah. And also when facing uncertainty, and reality is going to be uncertain no matter what you do. You can't control it, and and that's the point of your uh, of the provocative therapies. I understand it is to is to drive this point home. And for me, it was a it was a big moment. It's not actually a moment I can point to, but a process of understanding that there's something so liberating about picturing myself lying in space and just letting all the cosmic rays just go through me without any sort of resistance, just being this passive leaf floating on a river, on a river you know, um, being able to do that. And it doesn't mean that I don't have causal powers anymore, that I don't try to do things and and try to learn things uh, like we said before you learn things you do it explicitly but eventually it's it's not worth um, the effort that it takes to resist what's coming and if you find yourself ill-equipped or like you don't have the strength to fight what's coming your way well then don't because if you're going to resist and exert yourself too much you're going to grind yourself um, you're going to grind yourself into dust and that's not something we want. So I, everything you say like resonates with me on such a, a deep personal level. And I understand from you so that you're basically marking um, a turning point in, in your story where, I mean, you also, you, it wasn't explicit in your story, but I'm amazed how quickly it became um, evident that, you turned from worrying about yourself to worrying about others. Like it's something that just wasn't yeah. said, but it's so naturally uh, yeah. followed from your story that you stopped 
uh, worrying about yourself so much and started worrying about others and caring for them. Yes, um, and this is healing. Love is healing them. What is really drove me then there is this absurdity, this absurdity of trying to grasp truth. And then I found this, what we talked before about this, you come aware of the composition beyond. You find the joy in aesthetic map making, in the process itself, in the infinite game. And I express it now again explicitly. It was the years before very implicitly, very vaguely, but it opened me to the life again. It's the aesthetic, the enjoyment of just drinking a coffee. I don't have to make every coffee a philosophical thing itself. I just enjoy the coffee and it's the composition itself that I enjoy or talking to somebody, helping somebody. And this trusting, you start to trust and open yourself. Open yourself beyond control. Controlling, um, you have very strict rules, what you expect from yourself, but also very importantly from others, from the world. And this closes you. You you have your own rules and there are conflicts because everybody lives in its own world. And it's a very um, wild medieval world nearly. Everybody with its, every village with its own dogmas and clashing in each other. But in this process of opening, I felt an, oh, vulnerability opens to love. And love is a feedback loop, a very positive feedback loop, because love heals your insecurities, your fears. You feel safe in the nest of love. But love is found in the net. Let's say you have to take the leap and the net appears. That's the, that's the improv phrase. You have to trust. Take the leap into the darkness. The net will appear. And I would say the net is love. You will land in love and love is like a tour booster again into so many different places that can bring you where you can jump yourself again and let, jump with others and it's disconnects and this brings you to other people and makes a game possible. And this is the, where we come to improv. Where that's the essence of improv. If I come on the stage with my fixed ideas I'm the hero of the story and I am, um, I will save a child from a lion. But the other wants to bring a story about a spaceship and uh, cooking. There will be so much conflict and you will not listen to the other person. You will just filter through your ideas. Ah, did he say uh, animals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to the lion. I said, no, you destroy the story, the harmony of the story. So you become... When you go on stage on improv, you take the leap. You trust that something will appear. And you go out and have no idea what is happening. It's really extreme situation. Sometimes with big audiences and you go there and I have no idea what I will say in the next moment. Or if I say something, maybe I'm just a tree in the next scene. Um, so this teaches you so repetitive that you leap and trust others and yourself to that the harmony, the aesthetic of the map making will appear as an interconnected game to each other. And this is really had one of the most greatest healing powers for me then. Like 
you go on stage and you can be I can just stare at you and feel you, you know? What do you bring on stage? What does the other bring on stage? Hi, sir, can I borrow this book from the library, please? And then certain, then it's bottom up, you know? For sure, you have to correct again, like in tennis, sometimes when you, oh, there's a conflict, uh, maybe you recognize the story is off, you slowly correct and then you let off again, let patterns emerge. And improv is one of the best games so far I found to teach you this because they understood psychologically very, very well already what it means to let go and take control, this balance, this interconnectedness. That, and that's, that's the beauty. That's, yeah, it's, it's truly beautiful. And I'm, I'm trying to reconnect again with, with the concept of, of don't, don't try too hard and think about this something that i i see about this is that there's also in in tennis actually if you do it right in tennis or anything of course at this point it's pretty clear that we're talking about life in general here but let's stick to the tennis metaphor um or example you should probably um try very small things um to learn these small bits of information and get them in you so whether it's your stance where your hands are, where your feet are, um, just a swing. You learn these things each on its in its own right, right? Like not connected to the other thing. You want to do this other thing. Um, but when the time comes, you actually want to be able to move between these things. And it's actually um, interesting because eventually it's like trying too hard is really the equivalent of, of practicing ahead of time, just coming up with this game that you think is going to play out is like, yes. and, and just trying to do um, a rehearsal for the game as it's going to be, Yes, you know? <laughs> this is trying too hard. Instead of having all these small bits of knowledge that you um, now internalize, you are going to go the extra mile, which is ridiculous, and actually rehearse a whole tennis match only to find, you know, after the first serve that it's not the tennis match that you had in your head. And, and now, now you're fucked, basically, right? It's like, I'm going to lose it. That's not the tennis match. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's really crazy. I want to be mind, mindful of our, of our listeners' attention, knowing that attention span, knowing that we could always come back and I want us to come back and discuss a, a lot of these um, things further and develop them. Since you, since you got to what, what you're doing today anyway, I'll be, I'll be happy to hear from you. Um, first of all, if, if, you, if you agree with what I just said and also then elaborate on um, where people can find you, what you do uh, professionally and maybe, maybe your goal and something else that you'd like. It was a great, great pleasure to talk to you. And um, I mean, yeah, we just opened so many new topics. And yeah, I would love to talk to you as soon as possible again. Yes. <laughs> People can find me on by Googling me <laughs> and finding me there on many places. Um, for sure, on Twitter under the tech name Sisyphus. Um, but it's hard. They just should Google me with Nikolaus Sabatil. Maybe they find my name then anyway um, when you publish it. And then... Um, they find me on uh, via email on my webpage. Um, and my webpage states I'm a psychological coach 
now. Um, that is a half true thing. Um, this page is for my side of myself that I'm coaching people. But I have a second side. I'm a software developer and technical manager. And I'm working on uh, augmented and virtual reality applications. Um, so I'm between the worlds in this way. Um, so if people want to talk to me about virtual and augmented reality, about computer games and 3D animations, I'm also very passionate about. Um, but also if they uh, have questions or topics to discuss with me, I'm very happy to speak to them and they find my contact formula on my webpage and my email. I'm very happy to help um, everybody that contacts me. That, that's awesome. It, all, it, always, it almost seems uh, more realistic to ask you about the one topic that you don't want to be, to be talking about because your breadth of knowledge is, is so great. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Nico. And I'll definitely stay in touch and thank you so much for coming up here and sharing so much, being open and insightful. And remember, so don't so try too hard, Nico. <laughs> I try my best not to try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a great evening and thank you so much, Leo. You too.